Hey everyone, welcome to Dev Educate. I'm Kamran Ayub. Today I'm joined by Todd Gardner. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kamran. Sweet. Well, I'm so happy you're here. So I invited you onto the show because I think we first met at NDC, which is the Norwegian Developer Conference, but ironically it was in Minnesota, not Norway. And that's when I came across um, PubConf, which was a conference that you had put on. It's probably the most hilarious conference I've ever attended because it, <laughs> it happens in a pub and people are drinking and having a good time and the the talks stay at PubConf, but they are just some of the most hilarious talks I've been to. And I think prior to that, I had come across TrackJS at another local conference, and that was the first time I saw you speak. So today, I sort of want to talk about your journey to being a technical co-founder, and hopefully we can also get into the way that you do your conference talks and integrate humor, and maybe even how to organize conferences. But for the folks who are hearing you for the first time, could you tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Sounds good. So my name is Todd Gardner. I am a engineer, conference organizer, and company founder. I was a web developer contractor for many, many years until I started a company called TrackJS, which is a JavaScript error monitoring service. I bootstrapped that company with the help of two others and, and grew it into a, a profitable thing that helps thousands of companies today. We have two products now. We also have a second product called Request Metrics that does web performance monitoring, which is cool and we're, we're getting good traction there. I'm also heavily involved in software conferences. I've spoken at a bunch of them. I've helped organize a few of them. And as you talked about, I, I run a small little conference party thing called PubConf, which is a developer comedy show at a bar that I usually host after a quote unquote real conference <laughs> to just do silly talks and have a good time. Yeah. And it, it is a good time. Well, I think maybe the first place to start is you said that you did contracting and you grew TrackJS from zero to now working on it full time and now even working on a second product. So do you want to talk maybe about how you started that journey and, and how you got your first customers with TrackJS? Absolutely. In the early 2010s, I was a .NET contractor. But it was the time where the JavaScript renaissance was first starting. And so I, I, I would go to these companies and we'd use these tools to build these rich client-side apps. But as, you know, if you worked at all in that, that time, that space, it was very hard to build things in a maintainable way. In a lot of ways, it still is hard to build things in a maintainable way. But the tools just, they... They didn't have a lot of instrumentation around how they worked. And so what we ended up doing were, for these companies is building these little monitoring and observability systems into all the applications so that we could capture basic error reporting and analytics and performance. And so when stuff blew up in the client side, as it inevitably did, because, you know, IE, Internet Explorer was still a big thing at that point, we would have ways to capture it. 
And so I built one of these systems for, you know, clients, and then I'd go on to the next project, and I'd build another one that got a little bit better for the next client. Mm -hmm. And it, it did this three or four times until eventually a couple of the people that I worked with a lot on these projects, I pitched them at a, at a small conference called Mini Bar. Like, hey, we keep building this thing. Maybe we should, like, build this thing once and, like, sell it. Like, make it part of our consulting offering mm -hmm. was our initial idea. And they all thought it was a great idea and everybody was excited. And so we started putting this thing together nights, weekends. We hacked up a very simple demo that worked in Chrome and had a basic skeleton. And we took this thing to the local JavaScript user group called JavaScript MN. And we had two different companies right there want to buy a subscription. Okay. So there, that's when we knew that like, hey, this is, this is a thing. Like this is, we're touching on a, on a major pain point for a lot of people. This is bigger than just something we could do with our consulting clients. This is something that like we could, we could make into its own. And so we started building, building it for real, building it, that it wasn't just a mock-up. It wasn't like a real thing. And that probably took another three to six months to make it to something that we really felt good about. And we opened up a private beta. And, and once we announced that we landed on the front page of Hacker News, which was cool because it, it was again, a bit of reinforcement that like, this was a thing that was a problem for a lot of people. The three of us who were working on it were all independent contractors. Mm -hmm. So we were able to slowly transition our time from working for others, working on client projects to working on, for our own app as, as it grew, as it made more money, as we could dedicate more and more of our time and, and expenses to it. So the point where I went full-time on TrackJS in 20, late 2017 and my two partners came on board full-time in 2018, early 2019. Okay. Okay. This is super interesting. And I, I heard a lot of little tiny nuggets and tidbits that I want to dig into. Uh, so starting with, you mentioned that when you first brought TrackJS to a local meetup group, JSMN. So what did that look like? Was that a a talk that you gave or how did you present it to the user group? So I knew the organizers, mm -hmm. uh, they were people who I'd run into a bunch of times and I'd spoken at it, like at a conference talk format at JavaScript event before. And so once we were starting to like put this, this proof of concept demo together for what TrackJS would become, I reached out to them and said, Hey, this is a thing I'm building. I'd like to like, come and do a demo sometime. And they put me on the schedule for, you know, I think two months from when I'd reached out to them and said like, all right, your demo is, is the topic. So we, we were the thing that night along with, uh, actually we weren't the only thing. There was two other people who were doing a demo of something that they had built okay. at that as well. One of them was Mark Grabansky demoing front end masters. Oh, nice. Which was, which was fun. The two of us demoed at JavaScript event on the same night. And, but like, that was it. Like we went in, we did a little 15 minute show and tell here's what, here's who we are. Here's the problem that we see. Here's what we built. And then we showed what it looked like. Yeah. That's funny. I, 
So I wanted to call that out because it might seem obvious that you were building a app that helps JavaScript developers with error monitoring. And so it just made sense to bring it to where JavaScript developers hang out to get their feedback. But I don't know that that is obvious to everyone who is building developer tools and or even like full-blown products. But going to a meetup, and especially as a technical founder or as a developer yourself, like how was the reception there? Did it did it feel like you were doing, quote unquote, doing marketing, or did it just feel like you were sharing this cool thing that you built? It felt very much like the latter, but it was the former. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. th so something that like I've talked about before is the idea around building an audience and turning an audience into your friends because selling to your friends is easier. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that I had done that kind of already before I'd even knew of TrackJS. So the people at JavaScript event, I knew most of them and most of them knew of me and we would talk and, and BS and stuff at the, at the user groups. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't a cold room. I wasn't just walking in and just being, Hey, here's a guy trying to sell something. Right. It was, well, one, here's, here's a guy that we know who's already like a known commodity in the community who's contributed, who, you know, we, we know that. And two, I wasn't coming in and just trying to sell something right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Like I, I was, I didn't, I couldn't take money. I it wasn't even on our radar to take money yet. It was more of a, Hey, here's this thing that we built. What do you guys think? Is this cool? Would you want to use it? Um, and pushing it that way was a very, I mean, it was, the easiest room I ever sold because I got sales and I wasn't trying to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the years since, like it, it's become more clear to me that like, well, what I'd really done there was I had cultivated an audience already and I had brought something in that was valuable and proved its value before even talking about money. Right. Which, which has ultimately been a very successful way of, marketing my products ever since then. Mm -hmm. And uh, TrackJS now is being used by a lot of big companies, but uh, I think what I wanted to call out there was that you didn't necessarily start with that in mind. Like you weren't trying to jump, no. jump the gun. <laughs> no, I, I started with, with people I knew, people I respected, people who knew me, people who would be easy for me to like take out to lunch or go get a beer with mm -hmm. to to understand more about what problems they had or how they used it or stuff like that. Just make it real easy to have a good communication with them. And that wasn't necessarily because that's what I was trying to do at the beginning. What I was trying to do at the beginning is, you know, we had this weird notion that that the value in TrackJS wasn't as this public saleable product, but it was going to be like an add-on to consulting. Okay. Hire Todd to build your next JavaScript app, and you'll get this awesome piece of monitoring with it. Mm -hmm. And of course, if I'm trying to sell that, I'm really only talking to like the companies that I would likely consult for. Mm -hmm. So it would be the big tech companies in in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And so, like that's where my head was at at the time. But it turned out to just be, you know, by happenstance, it was. A, a fantastic way of building a, a, a dedicated and engaged community here locally where I could get really good feedback 
And, and it's lasted to this day. Like I, I was actually speaking at a user group last week and there was a gentleman who I had never met before. And after my talk, he said, I've actually used TrackJS on my last two accounts <laughs> or last two contracting gigs. And I had no idea that you guys were local. Like he didn't know who I was either. Mm -hmm. Like it just in, in the local tech community, it, it spread the fastest because I had the best relationships with the first groups of customers who are all local. Yeah. And so it, it's just, it's done, it's done very well locally because of that, that engagement and relationships that we built. Nice. And for someone who is listening to this and is thinking, well, it's going to feel like I'm marketing to these people and they don't, they don't quite know me and I've never done like a talk before. So I don't, I don't even know how to structure it. Speaking at, in front of your peers at tech groups, there's, it, it is hard. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. It's a stressful thing to do, especially at the beginning. When I was first starting, I would spend outrageous amounts of time preparing and practicing a presentation. And then, um, Frankly, I would take, I, I had a flask with me and I would take a couple of shots of whiskey <laughs> 15 minutes before I was going to go on stage because like, I couldn't, like my nerves were just like on edge and I needed to like chill myself out a little bit and become a little bit more social. Yeah. So yeah, I totally understand how terrifying it is. You have to understand why you're doing it and doing it is around building an audience for yourself. Mm-hmm. So with whatever you're going to do, whether it be you're consulting or you're just, you're a freelancer or you're looking for your next job or you're building a product of some kind, at some point you're going to need to sell it, whether that's, you know, selling yourself or selling your thing or selling your training or whatever. Mm -hmm. And when it comes time to sell it, it's easier to sell to people who know you, who might even consider you a friend. Mm -hmm. They're, they're going to trust the things that you say, and they're going to respect the work that you do because they know that they've, they've seen a, a history of it. And so speaking at developer groups and conferences is the best way that I found to build that audience in developer circles. Mm -hmm. People will see the time and effort you put into things. They get a glimpse of how you think. They get a, they get ideas of the kind of things you work on. And simply by the fact that you're speaking, you're seen as an expert. So you buy yourself credibility just because you are on stage. Now, once you're on stage, you have to earn it. Right. But <laughs> simply by walking up on the stage, your default position is, oh, this person is an expert in something. Mm -hmm. And then you can prove that that is right after that. And so the reason to do it is that as a developer, if you like speaking to the developers who might be listening, speaking at a tech conference or a user group will build that audience for yourself, which can help in whatever it is you want to do. Now, I don't necessarily suggest getting up on stage for the first time and selling the thing that you're trying, like, if you're already trying to sell, it's kind of too late to build the audience and sell at the same time. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Like you need to have credibility first and then sell second. So this, I, I love this because this is exactly what I believe too. And in fact, I think what's interesting is I almost want to say that you shouldn't go into it with the mindset that you're selling because <laughs> I mean, developers tend to be not so interested in being sold to. I mean, nobody nobody likes the feeling when they're being sold to. You know what I mean? Oh, it's. I would think it's even. It's an even stronger reaction to that. Yeah. Developers of all the of all the groups of people that I've ever worked with or talked to are the most suspicious of sales. <laughs> like, it's not that they just don't like being like sold to. They actively dislike salespeople. Mm-hmm. My angle is that you should not think about this type of marketing as selling to developers, but to be more like you're helping developers. So, so in other words, to take a more like educational mindset. So if you approach it from an educational perspective, what are you helping your audience to achieve? And, and then if you're going to do any kind of selling, you'd just don't do it until like the very last slide where you're like, you know, if you found this helpful, you know, check out TrackJS, which helps you do error monitoring. But for the entire talk, mm-hmm. the entire talk has been around how do you deal with JavaScript errors? Because that's like a huge pain point for JavaScript developers. And then at the very end, you're sort of doing your, your sell because throughout the entire presentation, you're, it's all just focused on helping the audience and not trying to sell to them. And if, if and I think that approach can help when you're talking to folks who may not know you or you're trying to earn trust. This is the tiptoeing that we need to do in order to be effective at selling software to developers. Yes. Is we do this educational content marketing, which is what all of my talks have been. Like mm-hmm. I, I've done this talk that you just you just described. It was called JavaScript Forensics. Mm-hmm. And it was all about debugging different classes of errors. Yep. And then at the end it, there's there's a pitch of like okay I did all this thing we talked about all these kinds of errors so we talked generically for you know an hour and now here's here's a conversion point but ultimately the business goal that we were trying to achieve is to get to that conversion point mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I which I think a lot of other companies that's what they're also trying to get like they're not the the reason that there's a budget for these things is because we think it's ultimately going to drive sales. And the way to get there is through education. It's through community building. It's through content authorship. It's through all of these other paths mm-hmm. to 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 bypass the walls that developers put up around themselves. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I totally agree and that's that's one of the the points I want to sort of focus on with this podcast too is to sort of change the mindset of like developer relations is sort of sales and marketing to developer relations is really about helping developers get better at what they do and if it if you help them understand how your product can help their help them do their jobs faster easier or more effectively then you're you're getting the same benefit without seeming salesy you know Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so how has growing request metrics differed 
in that respect to Track.js, are you targeting kind of the same developer audience or have you found that you need to speak to developers a little differently with request metrics? How has that been going? We're still learning about who the right audience is. I wouldn't say that we've hit like this perfect fit yet with request metrics. The product, you know, it, it's grown, it's self-sufficient, it's, you know, I would call it a success, but it's not as big of a success as I want it to be yet. Mm -hmm. It's not as big a success as I think it can be. Mm -hmm. And I think we're still searching for who the right people are. Because when we started, you know, even though we knew from TrackJS that like there was a little bit different audience, we were still kind of using our same developer audiences that we knew and we were good at talking to them and we, we brought request metrics to them as well. Thinking that like, oh, you know, lots of developers talk about performance. Clearly they're gonna care about this, but I don't think they do. Where we're finding a little bit more traction is in agencies. Mm -hmm. And not that agencies aren't, I'm just trying, like there's lots of subcultures or sub markets within developers, you know? Right. There's, yeah. there's you know, big app, court, like developing, you know, a full scale app for this corporation. And there is an agency that, you know, they are gonna move between a dozen apps in a month and are like basically the full support web support team for their client, for their app or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you said that developers tend to have a harder time caring about performance. In my experience working at a big retailer, we cared about performance in, in, in a way that was more like what it enabled. Since it was for e-commerce, performance is important in terms of making sure that people aren't bouncing or that they aren't abandoning their cart or you know getting through checkout as fast as possible and not blocking them and so that's why we cared about performance because it directly affected sales but on like a hobby project or you know something that something where it's not causing like a loss in revenue performance is sort of like a black box like a lot of developers aren't sure, you know, how, how do, how do I even diagnose performance issues and, and stuff like that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and if there's no financial reward to it, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to get people to care. And so you, you have to focus on places on customer segments where there is some financial reward or penalty mm -hmm. to performance because People aren't aren't willing to put the put time and money behind something that feel that that just should be, but there isn't a reward around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that you had started, I think, with the sort of positioning of like request metrics is for developers, but are maybe finding that that positioning isn't really resonating as much as you thought, and it seems to be resonating more with like agencies. Did when you started request metrics, did you like put a lot of thought into like your your market positioning, I guess? With Trek.js, we had we have an ongoing like a marketing plan mm -hmm. where we have like six personas around who we think our target customers are that's data supported. Mm -hmm. Request metrics 
started basically with a copy of that. It's like, okay, we're just going to build, we're going to go off kind of the same game plan. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to emphasize, you know, these personas more than these personas. But they were the same core personas. Like they were the same, the same people. Mm -hmm. We were just thinking like, okay, but these four are probably better than these two kind of thing. But I think what we're slowly learning is that at least within the space of web performance and what people need from it, maybe those per personas aren't accurate models, mm -hmm. or maybe there's other personas that are interested in this that like weren't even on the radar for us with TrackJS. These are the, the challenges is I think our personas are wrong. And I don't know that we know how they're wrong yet. I think we are still in the process of throwing spaghetti on a wall and seeing what sticks. I think this is super applicable to anyone who's struggling with sort of understanding how their product or how their open source project is valuable to someone else and not just them. Yeah, I think we are guilty a lot of building things that we think would be valuable to us when it may not be as valuable for our target clients. It can be hard as like a, as like a maintainer, or even a technical founder to sort of reach out to people and ask them like what they might find valuable or what their problems are that you can help solve. It's sort of, uh, the, that idea of like, build it and they will come. Well, people, you can build it, but people may not come, especially if they don't know about it. But even if they do, it might not be what they're looking for and that could be okay, but we'll have to find out like, who is it valuable to and, and whether or not there needs to be a change. Yes. Do you, do you, for request metrics, does your like developer marketing look a bit different? Are you still doing like conference talks around web performance and sort of tying that back to request metrics? Like, how does that, how does that look? So I have gone out to three conferences this year and I do have a talk right now called observable web applications and it's about applying tools like error monitoring performance tracking or error tracking performance monitoring and analytics to better understand the behavior and effectiveness of your app mm -hmm. and it's in the same tone I've done all of my other things it's you know a bunch of generally applicable stuff and then there's a cell for both trackjs and request metrics in there and it's been pretty well received and i think it's it's done okay to like introduce the concepts but i can't quite scale that part as well as i did at the start of trackjs i just can't travel that much anymore sure when i was doing track js i did like 15 conferences a year mm -hmm. in 2015 and 2016 and i really just burnt myself out on it now it was fantastic and it really helped grow the business but i don't know that i can go to that many events and some of the events that I think worked really, really well for TrackJS. I'm not so sure are going to be the right audiences for request metrics. Well, I was wondering, so one of my clients has found a lot of success doing webinars, which are, Ooh, that's a good yeah, idea. they're not, you know, they're not as time intensive or especially travel intensive as conference talks, 
but you can sometimes reach an even larger audience depending on what your existing audience looks like. Have you like tried taking a look at that since it's, it is hard to scale doing a, a scale of one person, but webinars yeah. are a little easier to scale. You know, I have added look into webinars to my to-do list maybe like two dozen times <laughs> over the past couple of years. Yeah. And, and honestly, I just, I, I haven't, and I, I have no excuse for why I have not looked into it or why I haven't done one because on paper, you're right. Like they do, they just, they, it seems like a better, like a, a bridge is I can't get as big as I can with online, mm -hmm. but I'm building a tighter relationship, not as tight as, as face to face, but it's a slightly bigger audience. I should. <laughs> something about it that's just does not excite me though sure and part of it i think is just my own personal experience of like when i in another lifetime when i worked in a corporate thing and i would attend webinars of like vendors that we used or whatever mm -hmm. they were so bad mm -hmm. and so boring and like like I didn't come away from I I've personally never come away from a webinar feeling really good about whoever I talked to. And and so I guess I just haven't I need to see good examples of it. Yeah. That make me excited before I can really throw a lot of energy into it. Well, that could go back to one of our earlier points is, you know, those vendors might be looking at webinars as a way to sell and attract leads <laughs> for for their <laughs> product, but if you take more of a, the mindset of all my all my developer marketing is really developer education, then webinars are just a conference talk in a box, especially if you design them to be just like a conference talk. But one of the there's a couple benefits, obviously, to to webinars, but you get that interactive portion. So if you're testing out an idea, they're great for sort of prototyping an idea, like if you're thinking about introducing a new product or a new sort of feature to your product or something like that, doing a webinar is nice for that. And, but if, but they can be recorded so you can, you can keep them, you can share them, you can turn the webinar into like an email or a newsletter, or even depending on what it is, you can even turn it into like a email course or a full blown course. Like you could start with a webinar and then sort of remix it into a lot of different marketing activities, which is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk a little bit about the way that you use humor in your conference talks <laughs> and uh, have, like, have you, have you found that to be pretty effective, like with connecting with like a developer audience? Cause I, I feel like it, humor works really well in, in talking to developers. Yeah, I think it has worked really well. It's not a developer specific thing about why I, I did it. Mm -hmm. I really started focusing on putting humor into my talks, mainly to keep people interested because an hour is a long time to pay attention to anything. And if you're in a, if you're at a conference or at a user group and you're sitting in an uncomfortable chair with a bunch of other people watching a presentation and it's not entertaining, it is so easy to drift off. You pick up your phone, you work on something on your laptop, you just doze off mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. and then obviously like nothing is nothing productive is happening the the speaker is not accomplishing what they set out to do it's sapping energy out of the room the speaker doesn't feel good because they see people like not paying attention to the audience i think it's just very important 
even if your your goal in speaking is around education or training or marketing or whatever your objective is it's got to be entertaining first mm -hmm. because if it's not entertaining nobody cares or that nobody can can maintain the interest level long enough to get to the end and so you have to keep it interesting you got to tell a story and you got to inject humor and I think both those things are really, really important in putting together a talk of any kind. Mm -hmm. uh, story gives the whole talk structure and it gives them reasons to care through it. Like, and by story, I mean like it should have like a crescendo, like you should be your top, your points should be building up to some like climax moment yep. where like <laughs> a conflict resolves itself and you might even have, it might even be as, you know, on the spot of introducing characters and whatnot, but it, it doesn't have to be all that, you know, spot on. But like the talk needs to flow and tell a story about a set of problems and solutions more so than lists of bullets on slides. Yes. Yeah. And then if you don't like break the viewer out of, that pattern out of the monotony occasionally with a joke, like it's mentally exhausting for them to stay, to stay with your train of thought. Mm -hmm. You just need to break the tension. And like, if you can get off a good joke that is contextual to what you're doing, or even just contextual to the audience, that both relieves a bunch of tension, release a bunch of endorphins of all your audience, which indirectly cause them to like you more because you just made them all laugh. Yeah. And if they like you, they're <laughs> going to think you're, you're more serious and you're, you're more expertise. And so I think humor is just like, it's just this glue that makes whatever you're trying to do better. Yep. There's that quote, no one will remember what you say, but they will always remember how you made them feel. That's what that reminds me of. And yeah, I mean, I feel like I will definitely do an entire episode on the importance of storytelling, but it is so important to making great conference talks. It's not something that I started out doing. And then I learned over time that actually crafting a narrative and crafting a story just made my talk so much better, so much more like well-received and, uh, and people actually paying attention. And uh, if, if the listener is interested in how you do that, there are a lot of different frameworks for crafting stories. There's like, there's the hero's journey, which I think you learn in school. There's also one I heard recently, the Pixar, the Pixar template. And that comes from, if you take a look at all of the Pixar movies, they all follow the same pattern. And I, I don't know it off the top of my head, but if you look up Pixar storytelling, I'm sure you'll, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. That's super interesting. I never really thought about it that way because each Pixar movie seems different, but really they're all following the same pattern. And it's just, it's a proven approach that Disney uses to make really good movies. And it's okay to use like a, a storytelling framework. If you are doing it, doing it well, then people won't even notice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, I've not seen the Pixar storytelling framework. That's really cool. Okay. So I have. The very, very last question, which I'm going to ask all my guests, but what is 
one piece of advice you would give to someone who is creating content for developers? Anything, any one, one key piece of advice? The world of software developers is not one thing. There are so many smaller groups within that. And I think it's really important to know who you are talking to more precisely than developers. And so some examples of that, like first, what's their skill level? Are we talking to people who are in code school, just out of code school, two years into their career, five years in their career, 20 years in their career, 40 years into their career? Like, where are they at? Because I think each of them will have a different expectation of what's valuable and needed. Set like, there's also, you know, what technology kind of domain they run in. Mm -hmm. So you can say that like, you know, it doesn't matter what languages you code in because coding is coding, but like, that's not entirely true because each of these groups has a slightly different zeitgeist, I guess I would use that word. If you talk about like a piece of commercial software to the open source community, you will be fighting an uphill battle. Like the idea that they don't get to see the source and that they have to pay a license for something is going to be a, a hill that you have to fight your way up. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you take that and you bring it to a .NET community, they'll be like, cool, sounds good. Where can I buy a license? Yeah. It, because they're just different. They have different expectations of what's okay and what's not okay. There's all like tons of other things, like what kind of company they work for. Is it super corp? Is it enterprise? Is it, you know, small, medium businesses? Is it agencies? Is it freelancers? They all have different kind of ideas. And so understanding which one you're talking to is the first thing I would say. If, if we were meeting in person, I'd give you a hug for what you just said, because that is, it is so important to not just generalize. Oh, well, you know, we serve developers. Okay. Which kind? Backend, frontend, JavaScript developers, .NET developers. Who are you talking about? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think that's that's super valuable. Well, Todd, where can people go to find out more about you and what you what you what you've been up to? Well, so as we've talked about a lot, I spend the vast majority of my time working on these two things: Track.js for error monitoring of web applications, which you can find all about that at trackjs.com, T-R-A-C-K-J-S.com. Or I work on web performance from request metrics and drawing cool pictures of sloths and how they can help make your website faster. That's all at request metrics, just like you would expect those words, no spaces.com. Very rarely I will blog myself like it's just me. And so I'm at toddhgardner.com. It's also my Twitter and my GitHub and my Facebook mm -hmm. and my LinkedIn mm -hmm. and everything, Todd H. Gardner. So that's, if you want to like talk to me about something else, I'd be happy to chat. You can get me there. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Todd. Here are the things I thought were worth pointing out when it comes to developer marketing and education. First, if you're looking at meetups as a venue to sell your product, don't go into it trying to make a sale. Instead, demonstrate the value before even talking about money, especially if it's a cold room and no one knows who you are. Next, when you treat marketing like education, you build trust. Trust is what builds an audience. Todd says, turn your audience into your friends because it's much easier to sell to your friends. 
Todd started local, talking to people over lunch to understand their problems. Even though Minneapolis-St. Paul has a cluster of Fortune 500 companies, that's still a pretty small niche of JavaScript developers. But that let him build a dedicated and engaged community locally, which still endures today. If you've never given a talk before and you're worried about it, try taking a shot of whiskey before going on stage. It worked for Todd. Okay, seriously, it's okay. It's going to be terrifying, but I can tell you when you focus on educating others and see their eyes light up, you'll gain confidence, you'll be seen as an expert, and it will build trust with your intended audience. Todd makes a point about developers actively disliking salespeople. The way we tiptoe around that is by focusing on educational content marketing, or what I like to call dev ed. Remember, you can't copy-paste personas between products, even if they're in the same niche like developer tools. Even though you'd think JavaScript developers would like a web performance monitoring tool, Todd discovered that request metrics value proposition actually resonated better with agencies. If there's one thing you take away from our conversation around giving conference talks, I hope it's this. Tell a story. What makes a good story? Conflict. Tension. Resolution. In the show notes, I'll include a link to a talk from Saren Yitbarek called Your Perfect Tech Talk, and in it she says, what's the story only you can tell? I love that phrase, and it's what I repeat in my head every time I design a talk. And lastly, don't generalize. Understand and pick the specific developer audiences you talk to. That's what personas are for. That's it for this week. I'm Kamran Ayub, and I hope you'll join me again next time for Dev Educate. If you'd like to learn more about developer education and how it can help you grow your open source product or developer tool, just go to devedtestkitchen.com. Join other professional developer content chefs so we can all learn together how to cook up better gourmet content that educates and inspires developers. You can also reach out to me directly with questions or comments through my website or on Twitter at Kamran Ayub. I hope you have a lovely day.